from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Taylor. How you doing, man? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm a little sore today, actually. Oh, yeah? I did a century yesterday, and I haven't done a century in years. Shem Bitterman, the guy who has been setting up the bike to strike while the actors and writers were out on strike, did a celebratory 100-mile century ride for all the bike to strikers. We had a blast. It was a great ride. We had about 20 people started in the dark and 6 in the morning, watched the sun come up. Uh, rode down to Long Beach, California, and then up the coast. It was really beautiful. It was a great way to celebrate the film industry getting back to work. Cool. That's important. You're feeling it? I'm feeling good. It makes me want to ride more. All right. You want to say what we have coming up in the show? Well, for the holidays, we have an interview with the Santa Cycle Rampage ride, which is really great. It's out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And we also have the Santa Monica mayor, Gleam Davis, on the show. And then the third one is yours. A farmer who commutes by bike to his farm in Maryland, and it's called the Come By Bike Farm. And I talked to him. But first, the news. The news today is powered by Ted Rogers, the Biking in LA blogger who has bike news from all over the world. And one of the items was a new report from the Governor's Highway Safety Administration called Automatic Traffic Cams, an Underutilized Resource, recommending further implementation of school bus stop arm cams, red light cameras, and speed cams. And as you know, a speed cam pilot program was recently approved for Long Beach, Glendale, and Los Angeles, along with three Northern California cities. But red light cams are currently banned in Los Angeles. Right. So. The, the red light ones have been a little bit tricky, I guess, for some people because it shoots a picture of the driver or something like that. I, I don't know why they're banned. The speed cameras don't really get that. They just get the car is speeding and they ticket the driver. Is that correct? Yeah, it's just the license plate. So the expectation for privacy would be limited, I think, Right. for your license plate. We hear over and over, Nick, that speeding is you know, the biggest cause of death on the roadway for driver-to-driver crashes, but mainly for driver-to-pedestrian and driver-to-cyclist crashes. So this is one way of stopping that. And, you know, we talked about recently about the National Transportation Safety Board's recommendation for speed limiters in all new cars. Right, right. Uh, so you you put these together and you're starting to have Fox News's perfect nightmare. They're the nanny state. The na- exactly. But it's Mary Poppins. So right. it's okay. <laughs> so it's cool. What else in the news? Well, Emily Badger of the New York Times, who's been on the show before, has an article uh, with a couple of other writers that talks about how America is in this epidemic of nighttime crashes where they are where cars are killing pedestrians. Other industrialized countries around the world, Canada, France, Australia, England, are seeing the number of road deaths go down. But in America, the number of road deaths is is skyrocketing, and especially at night. And they did research to figure out how it was. And the most dangerous time was 6 p.m. at night. They said there's a couple of reasons why, that in the U.S., cars speed more than in other countries. In the U.S., we have laws and we have cultural prohibitions against dangerous driving 
that are weaker than in other countries. And in America, the infrastructure of our designed roads enables cars to speed. So those three things added up is what's leading to this epidemic of nighttime road killings. Well, and that uh, leads to another headline this week, or that was uh, in Velo Magazine, which was an opinion piece entitled, Reflective Gear Won't Stop Cyclists from Being Hit by Cars. Better Bike Lanes Will. Right. And this is something that we've talked about a fair amount on the show, Nick. Maybe we'll get Jim Pocrest to talk about this. What are the legal laws about what you have to have on your bike? But we want to stay away from blaming the victim. I ride at night a fair amount. I use lights. I use a front light and a back light that are powerful. I wear a helmet when I ride long distances at night. And lately I've been wearing a reflective vest. And I got to tell you, Nick, sometimes I feel like the reflective vest attracts more cars to drive close to me. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a really tough situation because we want to be safe on the road. Well, I want to be lit up like a Christmas tree at night and I want to wear a helmet. I do. But I, the last thing I want to do is be telling people to do that before I talk about the real danger, which is cars and unsafe roads, because otherwise you are, you are blaming the victim. Right. Uh, anyway, so in, in other media, something lighter, I have a clip here from a mainstream talk show, Seth Meyers. You know the name of that show, Seth Meyers? Uh, Late Night with Seth Meyers. Uh, the Tonight Show with Seth Meyers. Um... <laughs> is, is one of those the title? It's a great show. I, I got to tell you, I watch it often. So Colin Jost, Jost of Saturday Jost, Night Live yeah. was on and he talked about how he rides bike. And here it is. How do you get to work? How do I get to work? The uh, show uh, sends a car. I take a car to work. Oh. How do you get to work? Uh, I bike. I guess I just maybe a little more man of the people. You bike. <laughs> I bike. I bike. So what do just, you do? A city bike? No, I, uh, I buy bikes and then I just throw them away when I get here. <laughs> So I just, you know. Yes, man, so the people. Just, man, the people. Yeah. You just, just like just, leave them on the street? Because there's not like a bike trash can. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I well, you know, it, it's a city bike-like system. But it's just not city But bikes. I just, yeah, but yeah. I just throw them away. And I yeah. don't, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I don't leave them in a shape where they could be reused. <laughs> you know that big, giant pile of broken bikes that's right outside? That's your bike? That's, that's my bikes. Haven't you ever wondered? You thought it was one of those cool sculptures they put up sometimes at 30 Rock, yeah. I thought it was Koontz. It was, a, it was a lot, I get a Koontz a lot. <laughs> That's great, uh, That's your favorite kind of bike? The one you just used I, once? Yeah, the disposable bikes. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm an environmental guy. You, yeah. you guys know that about me. Well, what I take away from that, Nick, is uh, Colin Jost is a better person than Seth Meyers. It's as simple as that. Yeah, it did kind of seem like that. Like he said, he's an environmentalist and he's a man of the people and he's... Like you said, better. <laughs> One of the great things about New York is famous people can ride bikes, and that's that's great. So I hope uh, Colin Jost was telling the truth when he says he rides to SNL on his bike and parks it in a safe place somewhere and rides home after the show. And you know, there is a study that shows that people who bike are better people than people who just drive. We had that on the show a couple of months ago. It's an actual study in the Journal of Environmental Psychology. So there you go. Colin's a better person. Seth's not bad. 
No. I'm just Colin's better. Oh, you um, know, Nick, I told you I did the century yesterday. It was really beautiful. We went up near Pasadena and then down to Long Beach and then back up the coast. And we ended in Santa Monica. And Santa Monica is really making a lot of changes. And our first guest really on the show is Gleen Davis, who is the mayor of Santa Monica. Hey, Gleen, welcome to Bike Talk. Well, thanks for having me. I should say back on Bike Talk because you were on about a month ago, weren't you? Yes, I was. And we had a great time. Yeah. So I see in the press now that you've thrown down the gauntlet to Amsterdam. You, you had a quote in the magazine Momentum recently where you said, watch out, Amsterdam. We're going to be the bike capital of the world. And when you say we're, you mean the city of Santa Monica. That's right. You know, I, I think it's important to set aspirational goals. And I decided to set a pretty high one for our city, for our staff, for our uh, residents. Um, I think that uh, one of the issues we have with building out bike infrastructure is that we think of it in very piecemeal ways because that's how it gets built out. We get a grant to build a few blocks here, you know, on 17th Street, which is where I made the statement was we opened our wonderful 17th Street bike lane, but we have bike lanes on Ocean Avenue and on Broadway. But everyone thinks of them as being individual projects. And for me, I really want to shift that paradigm to thinking of it more holistically, that these are all parts of a larger puzzle, if you will, creating the infrastructure we need in Santa Monica so that you can go wherever you want on a bike and be safe and so that you can avoid having to use your car if at all possible. So for me, saying the new Amsterdam meant being that we would be a city where your first choice of transportation just might be a bike. Right. Where you can actually choose the tool you need to run the errand that you need to run. If you need to pick up something big or travel far, you drive a car or take the train or the bus. But if it's just around the corner or down to the beach, you can ride your bike safely. Right. Absolutely. And what we know, for example, is that the safer we make it for people to bike, the more people will bike. I think that it's really key to know that on our brand new 17th Street bike lane, the people I've heard the most uh, uh, laudatory things from have been parents who say, for the first time, I feel safe biking around the community with my child. And that just makes me so happy I can't even express it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a great time when you can spend some time with your kids and they can be free to roam a little bit. Absolutely. And, you know, my goal is to make sure that all of the youth in Santa Monica feel safe biking to school, biking with their friends, you know, that we can have family bike rides. But it's really for me about creating this idea that these are not just one-off projects in little pieces of the city, but that ultimately we are heading to build a bicycle network better than, not just as good as, but better than our road network. So this 17th Street lane was described as having gold standard intersections and other features. Uh, do you want to talk about these lanes and how they're this, you know, how are they gold standard? Sure. So a couple of things. One is it's a protected lane so that there is a concrete curb type barrier between the bike lane and the lanes in which cars travel. There's a certain portion of it where actually the bikes have a designated area on a much wider sidewalk, but then it moves into these protected lanes. And then what we have are Dutch style intersections up and down this uh, 
a mile long bike lane so that cars that are traveling on 17th or moving on to 17th Street have to slow down and make wider turns. And uh, we have the concrete, what they call pork chops there, so that it reduces the potential interaction between cyclists and uh, people driving cars. And every time you reduce the opportunity for someone in a 3,000 pound metal box and a cyclist to inadvertently interact, that creates a safer environment. That's great. Last time you were on, we talked about the protected bike lane along Ocean Boulevard. And that's a game changer, I think. I found that really beautiful. And it was used a lot and it didn't seem to affect traffic at all as far as backing it up or slowing it down. And that was on a weekend when, you know, that area of Santa Monica can be really busy. Right. And I think that's one of the great things about the Ocean Avenue project and what will be true about the 17th Street project is that once people get used to them being there and realize that they don't necessarily negatively impact people driving cars, that they'll go, well, gee, cars and bikes can coexist. We just want them to coexist in the safest environment possible. And I I made this comment at the opening of 17th Street bike lanes that I I do tend to drive a bit because I operate on this weird schedule. And I like the 17th Street bike lanes as a driver because I feel like now there is less chance for me to inadvertently you know, come into contact with a cyclist. It's not just safer for the cyclists, it's safer for the drivers. Right. Um, and I think that that's also really key. So I make it a point now to drive down 17th Street whenever that gets me where I want to go, because to me as a in a car, there's less chance that I'm going to cause an injury to someone else. Right. It's more predictable. You know where the bikes are will be and you know where the cars will be. Right. And I think it's just, you know, a benefit all the way around. We're a vision zero city. We are committed to reducing, if not eliminating, uh, traffic injuries and fatalities. And it seems to me that this is this is key to that. If we don't separate big metal boxes from people on bikes or pedestrians or scooters, you know, just the law of statistics is going to say at some point you're going to have an unfortunate incident. And that's what we're trying to avoid. So if Santa Monica could be something like the bike capital of the world, what is it about Santa Monica? I mean, is Santa Monica, it's not really like just any city. Well, I agree with that. I mean, I think that setting an aspirational goal is possible in Santa Monica for a couple of reasons. One is that we're eight square miles. You know, we're not city of Los Angeles that covers, you know, hundreds of square miles. So we can do a lot in those eight square miles. We're relatively compact and it won't take near as many resources or as much effort to build out a real bike network in Santa Monica as it might in some other city that has a larger footprint. But I think the other thing is that Santa Monica has a history of being on the leading edge of sustainability issues. We were the first city in Los Angeles County to have a shared bike system, our breeze bike system. Uh, We, you know, are the first uh, city to do a lot of things. For example, we have a bike action plan that's been award-winning But we don't just sit on that because it was formulated originally a decade ago. We continually update it to address the changes in our infrastructure, but also the changes in the way people get around. I think the other thing that's important is in Santa Monica, our city council has declared uh, sustainability and addressing climate change as one of our primary priorities. And clearly, uh, creating a system where people have alternatives to automobiles is key to that. 
We've also set, you know, a clean and safe Santa Monica as one of our priorities. And for me, you know, a lot of people hear safety and they think about, you know, reducing crime, which is, of course, an important part of that. But for me, it's as important that people feel safe biking or walking in our streets because they know they're not going to get hit by a car as they do biking and walking in our streets and know they're not going to get, you know, involved in a criminal activity. So, right. you know, it's it, it's a safety issue and it's a sustainability issue. And, you know, I think if Jane Jacobs were on the show today, she would add that more eyes on the street make the streets safer anyways. The more people that are biking and walking on your neighborhood streets just increases the amount of neighbors watching out for neighbors and it makes the neighborhood safer. Oh, that's definitely true. And it's also really a boon to economic development because we all know when you drive by a small storefront. We have this wonderful general store called Lucky Penny in downtown Santa Monica. You will definitely miss it if you drive by it. But if you bike by it, it's going to catch your eye. And right. so it also really encourages these smaller businesses, you know, to to be more present because people on bikes, people who are walking are much more likely to stop off in a store and go, oh, I didn't know this was here. Look, this is really cool. I'm going to go in there and ultimately purchase something. Right. Well, one of the things we talk about is that, you know, the bike travels at the perfect speed of observation. So you can really see your your surroundings. I am curious to ask you, you're almost done being mayor, correct? Your term is almost up. Yes. T tomorrow evening, I will turn it over to one of my colleagues because we rotate the mayor position uh, through the city council. We don't separately elect a mayor. Right. Well, w what has allowed you to be an effective bike mayor. We know that Anne Hildago has been very effective in Paris and Mayor Wu in Boston, and of course, John Botters in, in Emeryville, California. But what kind of pushback have you gotten and what has allowed you to be so effective? Well, I mean, there's always pushback because change is hard for people. And we live in a community where most people are used to getting around by automobile. But what's allowed, I think, Santa Monica as a city to be effective, it's not my personal accomplishments, but the city's accomplishments are two things. And one is we have wonderful advocates here in Santa Monica. We have Spoke. We have a number of bike advocacy groups that support these projects. And whenever the projects are discussed, they come out and express how important they are. Uh, to a sustainable lifestyle and how important it is for them to be able to get around town without a car. And we have a surprising number of folks, even people with children, and that always seems to come up, who don't own cars or only own one car for the family. And they come out and explain how increasing bike infrastructure makes it easier for them to get around and makes it safer for them to get around. And we also have tremendous staff. I can't say enough about our staff that really is focused on the idea that we need to adapt to the idea of climate change. And one of those things is making sure that people have alternative forms of transportation. I hate that term, alternative form of transportation, right. that they have options. Right, choices, right. Right, and I think that that's really key. So it's having strong advocacy here in the community. It's having staff that has bought into that and understands it and works hard, even when there is some opposition. And it hasn't been easy. Uh, sadly, literally before we did the official ribbon cutting of the 17th Street bike lane, there were some folks who were sending us letters demanding that we rip it out. 
But I think, again, you know, the community came together, staff, you know, stood strong. And now we have this wonderful addition to our infrastructure in the city. Great. You know, I, I started the program today by saying that I did a, a century yesterday. And one of the great things about it was we rode on car-free trails and paths, I think, 80% of the way. And the last bit was through Santa Monica on a car-free, uh, well, it wasn't actually car-free, but it was a protected bike lane. And so it really means you can ride 100 miles around a city like Los Angeles and be protected from cars a great deal of the way. And I think a lot of that has to do with your leadership. So I want to congratulate you on a on a successful term as mayor of Santa Monica. Well, thank you so much. Um, you know, I, I'm hoping that the next time you come to Santa Monica, we'll have even some more impressive infrastructure. I think what's really important is that we keep progressing and moving forward so that ultimately we do have this really cohesive and comprehensive network of protected bicycle lanes that we can really use to encourage people to get around. Now, if we can just do something about the PCH, right? <laughs> luckily or not luckily, maybe that's not in our jurisdiction, but I totally agree with you. Um, yeah. You know, we're adjacent to it. And sadly, we see, you know, the tragedy that happens there all too often. Yeah. Gleam Davis, thank you very much for being on Bike Talk. Yeah, we'll miss you, Gleam. And I don't even live there in Santa Monica. Well, I'm not going anywhere. I've got another year on the council, so feel free to reach out anytime. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it. That was Gleam Davis, the mayor of Santa Monica, talking about putting in a new protected bike lane in Santa Monica. Well, this kind of fight is going on all over the country. In Portland, they put in a new bike lane and there was some backlash. So our next guest, Sarah Rizzer, did a poll online and it was hysterical. I loved it. So I want to welcome Sarah to Bike Talk. Hi, Sarah. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your poll? Because there is always pushback when one parking place is taken away out of like 7,000. But you did kind of a poll about it. And I'm curious what the um, results were. Yeah, I did do a poll. I did an online poll and it was based on a real situation that came up in Portland, Oregon, that was very interesting and very complicated. And so I posted a survey and I asked, you know, in this hypothetical situation, if the city installs a bike lane without doing public outreach so that the bike lane is installed and is a surprise to the homeowners who live on that street, and they get angry because they've lost parking, or I should say some of them get angry, then what is the appropriate official response? And I gave a few different choices. And one of them was, you know, tough luck, deal with it. The other was, we'll compensate you in some way. And then I, I also said, you know, we will remove the bike lane. And then I left an open category. And it was, it was very interesting when the responses started coming in, it was overwhelmingly tough luck, get over it. That was what most people thought. Well over I love that. percent of the respondents said, tough luck, get over it. But I think it's also important to clarify that I wouldn't say that my online account is co a complete bubble, but I do have quite a few people who are very interested in traffic issues, who are very concerned about traffic safety, who are people who advocate strongly for 
active transportation and public transportation. So a lot of these people are seeing it. So in that regard, the response maybe isn't so surprising. Oh, we don't care. We're just glad it was 85.3%. Yeah, pretty high. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, But, you know, a lot of things came up that really made me think a little more deeply about the issue of parking. One of which was, you know, a lot of people said, and it's really true, as a homeowner, you do not own the street in front of your house. And I think we're all so conditioned in the United States to believe that that space in front of our home belongs to us and we are entitled to to park our car there. And so to really take a step back and think about that and how we're all conditioned to believe that this is something that we should we should have without paying for was something that I really started thinking about in more in more depth. I'm so glad you said that because I think many drivers, and I got to tell you, when I drive, I'm the same way. I feel like there should be a free parking space wherever I go. And that's why I don't drive very much because it's getting to the point where there's not a free space everywhere I go. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people also weighed in saying that, you know, the role of public officials in this situation, the role that they have is to educate the public that this is the street is a public resource and that there are good reasons for changing the way that it's being used. And so not to reach out to homeowners to ask them whether or not it's okay to install a bike lane, but rather to reach out to explain why it is a good idea and to give them forewarning that a change is going to come. Right, right. And it was it was really built into um, an expectation in the city of Portland that when a street is repaved, when appropriate, they will put in a bike lane. And this was something that was somewhat buried in reports. And there was some um, disconnect between different branches of the Portland Bureau of Transportation. So it became an order to the maintenance and the operation department, but it sort of slipped through the cracks on the planning and policy department. So there was this disconnect and and a miscommunication. And so the bike lane actually did go in and the neighbors were surprised and they immediately started calling and pushing back. Can I ask you really quick, what was the street? Was it it an arterial street or a neighborhood street? And what was the bike lane? Was it a stripe or was it a protected bike lane? It was a striped bike lane. It was on Northeast 33rd Street, which is a residential street. Um, It was an important bike lane. It was one that had been recommended in, in planning documents previously as a connecting corridor Of course, as Jonathan Maas of Bike Portland points out, it's it's unreasonable to expect everybody in the city of Portland to have read all of the planning documents and to know, you know, what is in all of them. This is just not reality. So people were not aware that this was that this was going to happen. So very interestingly, the bike lane went in. Um, The Portland Bureau of Transportation got a lot of pushback from residents on the street, although I want to say not everybody was opposed to it. There were homeowners who actually really wanted that bike lane, but there were also some who were quite vocal and very upset that they had lost their parking spaces. And so an advocacy group that I'm quite familiar with called Bike Loud in Portland Um, got a tip from a staff member at the Portland Bureau of Transportation that they were going to deep throat. Yes, that they were going to go and remove the bike lane. So 
Bike Loud had this information and the chair at the time, you know, caught wind of it and he rallied a number of members and they literally showed up and just blocked um, the, the machinery that was there on site that was going to grind out this bike lane. Awesome. So, yeah, and they were successful, but, you know, the story continues. There's, you know, there's more to it as time goes on. But, um, you know, I think what I found really interesting about the situation is really everybody was upset with the Portland Bureau of Transportation on both sides. You know, the, the homeowners were saying, you did not communicate with us. There was no public process. And then the bike advocacy group also said you did not communicate with us you were going to take this out without any public process everybody was quite upset with the communication well what's the status is it going to stay do you know or not well right now the bike lane is in limbo it's a very fraught situation so the portland bureau of transportation has um, made it clear that they're not going to remove it at this time but they're also not going to enforce parking so that the so residents- So you can block, street, you can block the yes. bike lane just like right. everywhere else in the country, right. right? And so they've made it very clear that you know no, there will be no ticketing, there will be no enforcement of illegal parking. So the bike lane remains, but it's essentially not a bike lane. It's not safe. You, you know, bikers can't yeah. use it safely. Well, if you're in Portland and you're listening to the show, go out and ride that bike lane, ride it back and forth. You know, let's show up with numbers there. A human protected bike lane. Yeah. Sarah, thanks for the poll. And thanks for coming on Bike Talk again. And thanks for the reminder that we that we just have to keep fighting all the time. I mean, we we can't put our guard down for a second. We fight to get a bike lane in and they threaten to take it out. So we have to fight to keep it in. So Thank you for putting up the good fight. And I'd just like to add that, you know, showing up makes a difference. You know, being being there and responding quickly is is a great thing to do. Absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, thank you. We've been talking a lot about whether you can ride in the wintertime. And of course, I think the phrase that everybody gets is there's no bad weather. There's just bad clothing. Well, what's better for Milwaukee at this time of year than a Santa suit for riding, right? Right. That keep you warm. Yeah. That's the original winter clothing. Along with all of Santa's heft, I guess, keeps you warm too, probably. Yeah, that's true. Milwaukee has a ride called the Santa Cycle Rampage Ride. And there's pictures and videos of it, but there's 1,500 people dressed up as Santa riding they cork all the intersections. They have a police escort. They're ho ho in the whole way. There's Santas on rollerblades with jingle bells and ribbons and wreaths. People dressed up as the Grinch, reindeer. People dressed up as Christmas trees. But it's it's really mostly you know Santa Clauses. And the feeling of safety in numbers as you take over the road, combined with whatever it means to have a bunch of people all wearing the same costume, you know, must be intoxicating. They uh, stopped at a brewery at the end, so maybe it was intoxicating. Jake Newborn of the Wisconsin Bike Federation, he's the assistant director there, and he talks about Milwaukee's Santa Cycle Rampage Ride. Try saying that three times fast. Santa Cycle Rampage Ride, Santa Cycle Rampage Ride, Santa Cycle Rampage Ride. Okay, never mind.
Lately, we've been talking a lot about the different kinds of rides around the country. There's a, a ride for Black Lives in Los Angeles and a gender expansive ride and the Midnight Riders, critical mass, of course. But today we're going to talk about a little different kind of a bike ride, a group bike ride. It's called the Santa Cycle Rampage, and it's in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And today we have on the show the assistant director of, of Wisconsin Bicycle Federation, Jake Newborn. Jake, welcome to Bike Talk. Ho, ho, ho. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I might add that Jake is in full or almost full Santa gear right now. Yeah, Jake, uh, just kind of still just enjoying the vibes from the, the wonderful ride we had here on Saturday. Well, tell us about that. It's called the Santa Cycle Rampage. Uh, what is it? I kind of came up with this billion as calling it the world's largest holiday themed costume bike ride for charity. What it really is, is just a wonderful group bike ride. Everyone's dressed up in any sort of imaginable holiday themed costume. And we do, we hit the streets in Milwaukee. We do about a 12 mile looped ride, go through different neighborhoods and see, you know, surprise people. Some know we're coming, some don't. This year we had the most registered riders we've ever had. Over 1500 people registered and rode. We had hundreds more who are maybe bad Santas and just kind of hopped on. Immense numbers, um, our biggest ever uh, in our 19th year of hosting this ride. Wow, yeah, I saw that. You're in your almost 20th year. That's great. And it's grown each year, I assume. Yeah, it's grown um, each year. I'd say right around 2018, 2019, we really kind of started hitting this thousand rider marking up. How much money did you raise? Altogether, I think we raised about $40,000 um, on this year's event alone, just through through sponsorships and ride registration. Great. And what does that money go to? What's the charity that the ride supports? Yeah, so we're the Wisconsin Bike Fed. We're a statewide nonprofit education and advocacy organization. We have lots of great programs that are getting kids on bikes, taking kids for rides. We train and employ high school kids in the summer to fix bikes for free in community parks around the city. We do advocacy at the local and state level, you know, fighting for funding, policy changes that can make biking better, uh, not only in Milwaukee, but across the state of Wisconsin. Right. Hey, I was just in Michigan, actually, and uh, it was already cold. So how do you guys handle that? Do you do the Santa costumes keep you warm or what? Yeah, 100% polyester is surprisingly, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, warm and water resistant. You know, the ride is kind of rain, sleet or shine. This year, we were lucky enough to have it be about 40 degrees, cloudy and very low wind. So very comfortable to ride in for most people. I think that that contributes to you know the higher numbers as well we last year was about 20 degrees um very bitterly cold and windy uh so you know it changes year to year i remember 2017 i think was about 55 degrees and sunny so people were shedding you know santa gear as they went it got a little too hot so sure well one of the things i saw on your website is that you guys consider it to be a gateway drug for winter riding and we yeah. just had on the show a real grinch who said that biking is not going to save the world, partly because people don't bike in the wintertime. How do you guys confront that? I disagree with that, Grinch. Um, I think, <laughs> you know, especially uh, it's it's just so much more about kind of being prepared, um, knowing what, you know, what to wear. And and also I talk with a lot of people, I say, you know, have a cutoff. If, if it's 15 degrees and it's snowing and windy, you know, take a bus or maybe drive that day, you know, being comfortable with that. But there's so many days, particularly in Milwaukee and now with kind of weather patterns changing that are still very comfortable to ride in. And the Santa ride goes a long way to give people a chance to try it amongst other people and say, hey, you know, 
that wasn't that bad. Or maybe I just need some better gloves. My hands were cold or, uh, you know, and maybe just another layer. And so kind of gives you that chance to try it with a bunch of your friends out and then say, hey, you know, that wasn't so bad. Let's let's keep going. Right. We often say, you know, it's not bad riding. It's just bad clothing. 100% agree. And you don't always have to wear a Santa suit when you're riding in the winter. I'm with you. I think riding in the wintertime is great. Now, granted, I live in Southern California and today <laughs> it's, you know, sunny and probably 72 degrees. And I just got back from a little errand run on my bike. But I grew up in Michigan and did a fair amount of riding there in the wintertime and sort of agree with you that, yeah, there are certain days when you don't ride, but most winter days you can ride. And especially in the city where, you know, streets are being plowed and, and salted and, you know, maybe oversalted, but, um, <laughs> you know, the roads are generally, you know, kept clear enough. And so, yeah, I think there's plenty of opportunity to keep riding as lots of days in the winter. What's the bicycle infrastructure like in Milwaukee? It's improving. You know, I think that that's one important thing to note about what the Bike Fed is doing is we're, you know, working with local aldermen and the mayor and DPW to to advocate and push harder on, on better separated, protected bike lanes, things like that. Mayor Cavalier Johnson has proclaimed a goal to have over 50 miles of protected bike lanes in the city of Milwaukee by 2026. We're on the way. A lot of places are under construction. They're doing kind of quick build options too, either with like, you know, temporary uh, plastic bollards or delineators, or sometimes concrete kind of curb bump outs. And so, you know, they're, they're doing a lot as we go. Our DPW has gotten on board and our city has, you know, a few things kind of led to that. One, they passed a complete streets policy in 2018. Right. Two, they adopted the NACTO standards, um, which are very progressive preferred standards for, for bicycling infrastructure. And they've um, adopted the Vision Zero policy. So those three things kind of combined with a very visionary mayor and, and other, other people supporting of this and a great DPW have kind of put us on the right trajectory here in Milwaukee. Yeah, it sounds like things are coming together. One of the things we've also been talking on the show is that so many cities are building bicycle infrastructure for you know, three or four or five percent of the population, meaning the hardcore, you know, physically fit bike riders. But I think a ride like yours, you know, with 1500 people really opens the door also to, you know, non-serious bike riding people to get on the bike and realize that they can do it. A hundred percent. I mean, I think that that's a big aspect of it. If someone saying, hey, come ride with me and, you know, hey, look, you rode 12 miles today. Did you ever think you'd really be able to do that. And of course, in that amount of people, you know, we do kind of take up the street, but we do focus on the ride going near or by or through some of the other infrastructure that's that has been put up. So people say, hey, you know, oh, I'm in North Avenue here. There's a protected bike lane. I can use this next time I ride to go to the grocery store or go out for the night or wherever. So we try and highlight some of those new infrastructures. So at least, you know, even if it's not being kind of technically used because we've got so much mass, they're seeing it and seeing where it's at. Right. There's one serious topic I want to cover with you. What is a Shotsky? <laughs> um, a, sh a Shotsky is a old wooden ski generally with holes bolted or contraption bolted on to hold a, a shot glass and gen generally filled with a adult beverage. And you have to all pour it and hold it and drink it at once together. So it's a And do the Santas do this? What do the elves Santas think of that? <laughs> the shot ski is just one of those Wisconsin kind of things that I'm surprised that other people haven't <laughs> heard about. When the interviewers ask, I say, well, how do you 
How do you not know? <laughs> and do you guys do any other rides throughout the year? We do have another ride called the Ride Across Wisconsin. And that is a you know a more difficult ride, something you got to train for. This year will be from Lacrosse to Milwaukee, and one or two day options. And so that's you know again for the for the more seasoned veterans, people who love to ride, and they're hearing this, I'd encourage you to check that out. The ride across Wisconsin. That'll be in August. We also do a lot of smaller rides, you know, just small community based rides when we're either doing advocacy based around a project or taking kids on and taking a group of 25 school kids on a ride. Our staff is leading rides all around the city all year, all year long. Great. Well, I think that's a great way to get people comfortable with, you know, running errands on a bike. There's always safety in numbers and, you know, doing a, a short ride with five, 10, 12 other people is a great way to get comfortable on the road. Plus you just learn so much, you know, the older, more experienced riders help the newer riders with how to deal with traffic situations and, maybe even how to fix a flat or something like that. So it sounds great. Can you tell the audience quickly uh, how to find out about the ride, how to find out about the Wisconsin Bike Fed, and maybe how to reach yeah. you? Yeah, uh, wisconsinbikefed.org. You can just Google Santa Cycle Rampage. It's kind of the number one hit there in the Milwaukee area. You can follow Wisconsin Bike Fed on socials, You know, Instagram, Facebook, all those. We post about it. So you'll hear about the Santa Rampage if you're following us and see the other things that we're doing. You know, a lot of people don't know that the Bike Fed even puts this on because they just kind of see the ride. And so well, that's one of the things we're working on is getting people to understand that, you know, we're a nonprofit organization and we're doing a lot of stuff all year round. Great. It's December and we've been talking about great holiday gifts, Christmas presents for cyclists. Do you have a cycling gift for the cycling zealot in your family that you might want or that you might want to give to somebody? Oh, that's a great question. I, when people ask and my aunts and uncles ask, I say pretty much anything wool, <laughs> you know, wool sweater, wool socks, wool long underwear, anything like that. You know, a nice, nice hundred percent Merino wool, anything I'll take any day. Great. So that's for your winter cycling. Yep. <laughs> Jake Newborn, thanks a lot for hosting the ride and for being on Bike Talk. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much and save the date, December 7th, 2024. We'll be riding again. Perfect. That was Jake Newborn, the assistant director of the Wisconsin Bike Federation, talking about his Santa Cycle Rampage ride. Sounds fun. And here is Vincent Hedger, a gentleman farmer in Maryland, whose farm is called Come By Bike, because he gets there on a bike. So here's that interview. My farm is called Come By Bike Farm. It's located on the eastern shore of Maryland. And it's called Come By Bike Farm because when the farmland was offered to me, I was staying uh, about 25 miles away and I don't drive. And so I realized that uh, if I were to farm out there, that's the way I'd be going back and forth. And so I made arrangements when I was talking to the owners about what sort of arrangements did they want. I asked, would it be okay if I slept out overnight? And they said, sure, as long as you, you're not going to try and live here, if you're just going to be here coming and going. And so it's a small farm. You might call it an artisanal farm. It's only about two-thirds of an acre. Uh, and all of the work is done by hand. So two-thirds of an acre is about all I can manage. I have a little bit of help from some volunteers, but I do the, probably 95% of the, the actual farm work. We grow you know, 35, 40 different varieties of crops. 
I've been starting to grow flowers in the past couple of years too. And it's all organic. There are sprays that are allowed on organic farms and I don't use any of that too. I use some diatomaceous earth and try to work with the forces of nature as much as I can and accept the fact that that means the insects get a share, the rabbits get a share, the mice get a share. I read something once that basically that there's a lot going on between animals and plants and insects that we don't understand. And so to try and have an attitude of everything needs to be under human control is you're making a mistake. I think of it as like doing a dance, I guess, with nature, and it's going to make a lot of the rules, and you're going to sit back and say, what's happening here? I don't know, but I'm here to learn. So this ties into your philosophy of life, and why don't you drive? Mostly for environmental reasons. Uh, Early 1990s was the last time I had a car, and I'd been doing a lot of reading, and I studied environmental science as a graduate student, and that was right at the beginning of the time when the issue of climate change was starting to work its way into the, at least into the scientific, mainstream scientific community. And before that, I studied philosophy and ethics, which is all about asking the question of oneself, what am I supposed to do with my life? And so once I really started getting into the environmental science, I found myself saying, well, Vincent, what are you going to do about this Partly because I grew up running and skiing outdoors, cross-country skiing, and I've always loved the outdoors. And so the idea of carrying around all of this knowledge about the effect of our human family on the planet and saying, oh, well, that's not my problem. Somebody else is going to fix it. That's just not my personality. So I thought, well, you may not be able to fix it all by yourself, but at least you can take responsibility for your own actions. So that was sort of the genesis of my getting more serious about biking. But even before that, I've been biking since I was three years old. So I've always loved riding a bike. And it just seemed kind of like a natural extension. And over the years, because once I made that decision, it just got easier and easier because I figured out, well, if you build your lifestyle around this mode of transport things are not difficult the way they seem to a person who drives a car all the time. People who drive are like, oh, this is totally amazing. And I think, to me, it's just what I do every day. What do you think about how hooked on driving people are? <laughs> I think that's a, good, that's a good terminology to use. We talk about all kinds of addictions in our culture. And we just do a little thought experiment. Ask somebody, how easy would it be? How willing would you be to go for a day without a car? And I think most people would just think, that's not possible in my life. And, then, you know, you could ask somebody who's heavily into drugs or alcohol the same question, and they'd probably give you the same answer. So, yeah, hooked on. I'm not a blamer or a hater in that sort of a way. Or As a culture, we create positive feedback loops, positive or negative. But in the case of driving, we've built a culture that makes it very difficult for people to make choices any kind of choices about transportation. Once you turn 16, it's more or less taken for granted that you're going to go out and get a license. And then it's taken for granted that soon you'll be having a car. So it's frustrating to me. I wish it were different, particularly because of my concern about the climate. Human beings maybe have a tendency to, once we get habituated to something, we'll keep doing it until some calamity or catastrophe. Not one that's slow moving like climate, before we take the problem at hand seriously. You bike for like two hours to get where you're going, right? When you when you go to the farm. Yeah. 
That's true. Two hours. <laughs> That's something that, that most people can't imagine. Do you do it every day when you're farming? Well, I'm on a schedule. I, six days a week, I'm at the farm. That means in the morning, let's say I get up from where I'm staying, and it's a two-hour ride, about 25 miles, and then I'm at the farm. I sleep overnight, get up the next morning and do about half a day's work to about one or two, and then I ride back to where I'm staying. And I repeat that six times, and then Saturday, the seventh day of the week, for me, it's a 14-mile round trip to the farmer's market. So you don't need to go to a gym. I mean, you don't have like an exercise routine outside of that. No, I don't. But because I grew up uh, doing athletics, uh, I wouldn't recommend two hours a day of bike riding and farming for six or seven or eight or nine hours a day. It's not holistic the way I like it to be. And that's partly why I'm wanting to relocate into a situation where I'm not required to do two hours a day. Because what I'd really like to be able to do is get back into riding my bicycle for recreation or short trips, five, six miles, and then have all the, you know, an hour and a half a day or so extra so that I can recreate running or skiing, something that works all those other muscles and there's not work and commuting related, even though I still enjoy it. And you have to, you know, if you're going to get on a bike two hours a day, you have to have a positive mental attitude every single day because otherwise you're just going to be hating life. And at the same time, I'm also aware that those two types of activities, farm work and bicycling, because they're repetitive and they only work certain muscle groups, it's not the ideal health regimen for a person. And certainly mentally, it, it's a challenge to get myself into a positive state of mind every day. If, you know, I have aches and pains or maybe I have an injury or something from the farm mm-hmm. and it affects my riding. Uh, so it's a challenge. Like I said, it would be nice to be able to transition into something where I get to exercise more muscle groups and I'm not compelled to be on that bicycle for such a long time every day. Well, you're going to move up to uh, Massachusetts now, right? That's the current plan, yeah. What about e-bikes? you have a philosophy about e-bikes? Well, I'm into the original recipe. That's what I started out with. I used to have a bike shop, and I worked on some of these alternative bikes just enough to realize how much trouble they were. And, And so at that point, I thought, this isn't for me for partly because of those reasons, partly because if I'm going to get on a bicycle, I want to power myself. And at the same time, I realized there are all kinds of reasons why people wind up using e-bikes. You know, I figured that's a decision that every individual has to make for themselves. And furthermore, I know that there's some people for health reasons or physical problems who can't ride a regular bicycle. And an e-bike is certainly a lot more efficient mode of transportation than automobiles. So, you know, when I look at it from that point of view, I'd rather see people on e-bikes than in automobiles. Yeah, they're displacing four times as much oil as electric cars do. All I can say to that is, wow, and I'm glad to know it's having that effect. When I first heard about your farm, I thought maybe they were actually farming by bike, bike plowing or something like that. Do they have that? Well, I know that Hampshire College, 15, 20 years ago, I saw something online where they were developing small bicycle-powered tractors for farming, Hmm. small-scale farming. And I've often thought about that because there are certain tasks that if you had a simple machine like that, I farm two-thirds of an acre right now, but with 
a few tools like that could probably increase my acreage substantially. Uh, I'm hoping to get out there to Hampshire College and see for myself with my own eyes what's going on out there. And uh, maybe you can invent something. Well, definitely. You know, if you spend enough time out in the field working with hand tools, and if you're a bicyclist, and I, I have a little bit of mechanical skills too, so yeah, I imagine, wow, what about all different kinds of ways that it might be possible? If I have any spare time and the opportunities there, I might get into that. You want to direct anybody to your uh, social media or website or, you know, if you want to get in touch with people who have ideas for bike-powered farm equipment? Well, I don't do social media myself, but I have a farming partner who lives up in Pennsylvania, and she has a website. It's called The Art Farm Project, and it's in York, Pennsylvania, and you need to be aware if you want to check into this. She has a little bit of information on my farm. She's doing an urban food garden, but she's also an avid bicycle advocate. And there's a little bit of information on my farm and also what you see that she's doing with her project. We share a lot of ideas about farming methods and philosophies. What's the site? Look for the Art Farm Project and make sure it's the one in York, Pennsylvania. I, there's one somewhere else that's called the Art Farm Project, but it's Michigan or somewhere else. My project is Come By Bike Farm, but like I said, I, I'm too busy to do social media. I'm also a little bit leery of it. Are you going to start another Come By Bike Farm up in um, where you end up? One of the nice things about having a farm is you get to give it a name. Uh, and usually for me, the name is inspired by something unique to the circumstances. So I'm waiting to find out what my, if, if I wind up running on my own farm, I may be working with other people and they've already named it. It's the sort of thing when you're out in the field messing around and thoughts pass into your head. But then the thought always passes into my head. Well, Vince, why don't you just wait until you get up there and it will come to you. Very good. Thanks, Vincent. Thank you for the interest. That was gentleman farmer Vincent Hedger of Come By Bike Farm in Maryland. This is Stacy with a bike thought. As you might have heard, the United Nations COP28 has come to a close. The headline says that this marks the end of the fossil fuel era, but we all know that is just wishful thinking, because eight years ago, at COP21, the world signed the now-famous Paris Agreement, which states that greenhouse gas emissions must peak before 2025 at the latest and decline 43% by 2030. Here in the U.S., the nation responsible for one-fifth of global CO2 emissions, we've decreased by just 4% in that time. What would a 43% decline look like? The last time U.S. emissions were that low, it was 1961, and we had just a little more than half the population that we do today. This week, we read the New York Times article on pedestrian deaths as a uniquely American problem, and anyone who bikes here and has also seen pictures of Europe knows that we feel that vulnerability too. The only reason our numbers aren't higher is because bike infrastructure is only built for those brave enough or who have no other option than to bike. If we, people who bike, are going to survive out there, if we are going to continue to inhabit our home planet, there must be dramatic change and fast. We need leaders who see that bikes are the solution to a multitude of problems and that providing a comprehensive network aiming for Amsterdam is imperative, not just for personal safety, but for healthy cities and a livable world. 
What can we do? Please lift up leaders like Gleam Davis in Santa Monica, John Bowders in Emeryville, and Boston's Mayor Wu, and find others who are prioritizing human-scaled transport. And as always, send us your favorite bike photos to livebiketalk at gmail.com to share the love. This episode of Bike Talk is sponsored by the law offices of Pocross and De Los Reyes, with offices in Los Angeles and Bakersfield and serving all of Southern California. And that was another show. So thanks, Taylor. Yeah, yeah. If you are listening to the show this long, then you probably like the show. And so if you like the show, you know, give us a review. Give us a thumbs up on social media. It really helps other people find the show. And it helps us spread the word. We want to give voice to change on Bike Talk. And the more people we can reach, the more people we can get talking about parking and bike lanes and safe infrastructure, the better off all of our cities will be. So if you like the show, spread the word. Yeah, sharing is caring. Ride safe. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Get on your bike. Sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals. And ride it all around, ride it all around. Bye.